0: Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs. This week we've all enjoyed watching riveting television about an establishment figure who uses fraudulent means to win what he thinks will be a life of fortune, but then it all blows up in his face, making him a figure of fun in the land. Also, quiz was pretty good too. I'm Ross Taylor and joining us this week are three paid-up subscribers to the Sunday Times. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain and a notorious vegan agitator who interviewed fellow meat-free activist Juliette Galately for our sister podcast, The Bunker Daily, about the link between meat markets and infectious diseases. Naomi, hello. Hello. What was the last meat or dairy thing you ate before committing to the vegan life?
1: And it was fish and chips from my cousin's amazing chippy uh, called Kirbyshire and Malt and Brook Green, um, and it's very delicious. And Nigella likes their fish finger sandwiches very much. So high praise indeed. And yeah, as far as I can recall, it's probably about four and a half, five years ago now. That was that was my last supper.
0: Good choice. The impetus to extend transition is looking more and more powerful. Best for Britain released Fresh Volley on Monday that says two thirds of Britons and almost half of lead voters want an extension to the Brexit transition to help the country deal with Covid-19. Those seem like incredible numbers given how polarised things still are.
1: Uh, Well, 66% of the public uh, believe the UK should focus 100% of its energy on dealing with coronavirus for the rest of the year. Um, And that that was the question that they were asked, whether they agreed or or disagreed with. And uh, that 66% included nearly half of, as you say, Conservative and Leave voters. And of those who support an extension, 64% want the transition period to be extended Quote, indefinitely until the crisis is resolved. Um, and we have seen government satisfaction ratings fall slightly this week too. Uh, so maybe things aren't quite as polarised as they once were.
0: Alex is an actor, cook, singer, and Romaniac's Meganos correspondent. Hello, Alex. Hello, Roz. The COVID lockdown is putting us all under pressure. And you wrote for politics.co.uk last week about an encounter you had with a family friend that didn't go too well when they asked about your mother's condition. What happened there?
2: I, I don't mean to make a monster out of them because actually their comments were not atypical. It's really, really common with uh, when you have a parent with Alzheimer's for people to come up to you and express sentiments to the effect it would be better for all involved if your parent died and it's even more typical after your parent has passed away for people to come up and say never mind it's for the best it's a common attitude and i i felt it needed challenging
0: More than a few listeners will be in your position. So what advice would you give to people who want to reach out to carers during this crisis? What's the right thing to say? Be guided by them. Uh,
2: There are situations into which you, you go wanting your opinion to matter. This isn't one of them. Your opinion doesn't matter. Looking clever is secondary to being empathetic. Um, So be guided by the person you're talking to. Ditto for doctors, by the way, your medical advice is only part of a nexus of considerations. Respect the patient's agency, respect the carer's agency. You know medicine, but they know the person.
0: Last time Ben Stewart was on the show, he explained how his year-long campaign with Led by Donkeys ended and his wife immediately handed him their two young children. Like almost every panellist and guest we've had in the last few weeks, you're seeing a lot more of them now, Ben. Welcome.
3: Hi, it's good to see you guys again. Um, God, I forgot I said that. Yeah, and of course, six weeks later, a pandemic um, plague swept through the nation and my kid's nursery also passed me, my kids, and said, "Um, can you look after these small people for A long while. So yeah, I'm locked down with a one-year-old and a two-year-old. I'm going to be honest. I do love my children, but it's really fucking hard. So about 9 p.m. every evening, me and my partner are kind of lying, you know, splayed out on the floor of our lounge with a drained bottle of white wine and the foil from a Cadbury's Dairy Milk mega bar, sitting next to us, utterly exhausted. It's like a scene from the Crimean War after a day with these kids. (laughs) But um, I am, I am getting to spend a lot of time with them. I love them. I just want to get to the end of Covid and still like them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can totally empathize for that. <laughs> <laughs> the new Donkey's campaign is called Heroes versus Zeroes. Uh talk us through it and where it's being done.
3: Yeah, I mean this was a kind of this was a bit like um January last year when we started putting up Brexit quotes. It just felt a bit cathartic to us. We wanted to do something and say something. Essentially, we were looking at these kind of heroes mainly from the NHS who were walking towards danger at this time and thinking about the contrast between those people and some of the people who society had typically venerated, um, billionaires, businessmen, etc., who really were demonstrating kind of the opposite Moral weight at that point. So we've always liked playing with the big 12 metre mega billboards that you can sometimes get your hands on. One of my favourite things during the Brexit campaign was to put Dan Hannan's before and after claims and showing that he was a he was an idiot, didn't know what was talking about. And we thought we could use those to juxtapose heroes versus zero. So, for example, we, we dug out a tweet by a guy called Dan who said, my mum is a semi-retired nurse of 42 years. She's doubled her shifts to um, to help and she's not the only one. These people put themselves in the firing line every day. And we put that up against the Times headline that said EasyJet seeks state loans, but will go ahead with a £174 million dividend payout to shareholders, including £60 quid for boss Stelios. And we just wanted to kind of bring those two things together to kind of in a, in a, in a compact communication to say, these are the people that we should value in society, and perhaps like Sir Stelios, Sir Richard Branson, Sir Philip Green, perhaps shouldn't be the people that we value as we get out of this crisis.
0: On this week's show, we're going to look at that devastating Sunday Times report detailing exactly how the government, and especially our beloved SIP Liner-in-Chief, ignored pandemic preparations in favour of their beloved Brexit. Plus, with so much money already committed to sustaining the economy through the corona crisis, how will we pay for all that infrastructure and all those new customs officers that we were promised in case of a no deal Brexit? That's after a few messages from Naomi.
1: A gentle reminder of our Romaniacs versus the Bunker livestream coming on the evening of Thursday, 7th of May. We'll be talking about whatever state politics Brexit and the general economy are on by then. Who can predict? as well as answering some of your questions and raising a glass to our Patreon backers. Some of us might even make Alex's patented potato peel crisps (laughs) or maybe Ian's Doritos lasagna. (laughs) It's a registration only event for all Patreon backers and you can join them for as little as $2 a month. Yep, it is still in dollars. Think how many barrels of crude oil that could buy you. (laughs) We'll also be releasing video and audio to Patreon backers who can't make it on the night. So search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more and sign up. We've had a surge of support on Patreon in the last few weeks and with the economy going the way it has, that is very welcome and incredibly humbling. Thank you all. We'll see you hopefully on Thursday the 7th of May. Current backers, just search your inbox for how to register. Everyone else, search Patreon Romaniacs to join the resistance.
0: Thanks, Naomi. You forgot to mention my devils on horseback with bacon rasher crisps and tin prunes. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll make my (laughs) first. Yeah, I'll make my first foray onto Instagram to demo those next week. Maybe. Great. Depends on demand. Yeah. Just just, you know, at me if you want to. Anyway, first up this week, (laughs) the great ventilator mystery. We know the government decided not to take part in the EU procurement scheme for ventilators, though at first there were some muddled excuses about lost emails. Then the Foreign Office Permanent Undersecretary, Sir Simon MacDonald, caused a ruckus by telling the Foreign Affairs Committee it was a political decision not to join in. Reverse ferret, yesterday Sir Simon wrote to the committee chair saying he had made a terrible mistake ministers were not briefed by our mission in brussels about the scheme and a political decision was not taken on whether or not to participate yes it was those missed emails nothing political at all i understand the latest on this is that we're not even clear whether we're now a member of the scheme or not so yeah naomi is this explanation remotely credible
1: uh no uh definitely isn't um and as anyone who's kind of into true crime podcasts will tell you it's all about the timeline when you're trying to piece together the truth so if we just very quickly recap it on january the 31st march the 2nd and the 19th of march so three occasions british officials in brussels attended meetings discussing the eu scheme to help countries procure coronavirus equipment on the 17th of march Publicly, the European Commission confirmed that the UK is entitled to take part in the EU's coronavirus equipment scheme if it wants to. On the 19th of March again, Boris Johnson was urged by various different British politicians to join the EU's protective equipment scheme. A few days later, on the 24th of March, Ursula von der Leyen herself announced that the procurement scheme has managed to secure several large orders and was able to confirm that the UK wasn't taking part. On the 26th of March, so two days later at midday, when asked why the UK had declined to join the scheme, Downing Street said, we are no longer members of the EU. Later that day, in the evening, 6.45, Downing Street claims uh, made, made claims that a communications error was the reason that the UK missed the invitation. So that was the first we heard about these so-called missing emails. <laughs> um Then just last week on April the 14th, we had uh, cabinet minister, Therese Coffey, on LBC saying that the government has made an assessment that by joining the EU schemes, um, it wasn't going to make any particular difference. So she suggested then that it was very much a deliberate decision. And then yesterday, of course, we had this top civil servant, Simon Milton, uh, telling MPs that he briefed ministers about the options and that they'd made a decision. This political decision not to join the scheme. A few hours later, Matt Hancock tells the daily press briefing, it wasn't a political decision. Someone's then obviously got Sir Simon MacDonald, you know, in some kind of vice. I won't say which part of his body they were <laughs> they were clamping. But, you know, he's then forced to, to clarify. And that comes out in a letter to Tom Tugendhat last night saying, uh, it was a big mistake. I retract everything I said earlier and reverts to this line about the the fact that we didn't participate due to a communications error. Now, to me and to most people, and I think David Allen Green's done a particularly good takedown of this. It just doesn't ring true. And if it was a political decision, and that's what it does sound like, it was not to join the EU-wide schemes to bulk buy PPE and other essential medical equipment, then, frankly, the government prioritised its own image over the country's health, and that decision has been disastrous, and frontline workers deserve better, much better.
0: We know this is an ideologically driven government that's terrified of seeming beholden to the EU, but this is in another league, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it, absolutely. And it's it's this sort of constant campaigning mode that this government is in rather than the leadership mode. You know, everything is about optics and, and how they're being perceived. And and as I said at the start of the show, actually the tide is turning on that and, and their approval ratings have fallen a bit um, in this week's polls. So I think it's going to catch up with them it? first. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. I think they
2: went from 57 to 51 or something in the space of a week.
1: Hmm.
0: Mm, I think people have seen already far too much of Dominic Raab and indeed Priti Patel, you know, after her single single appearance. So more (laughs) on a wholly competent government now. Um, The Sunday Times described how Boris Johnson skipped five COBRA meetings before beginning to take coronavirus seriously. Pandemic training for key workers was ignored in favour of no-deal Brexit preparations and government ignored warnings about COVID as early as January. Ben, the government's concentration on Brexit at the expense of everything else seems like something from another age now. And the paper describes him as de happy in mid February as the news from China worsened, and then he disappeared for a 12 day working holiday, uh, whatever that means, with Carrie Simmons at Chevening. Uh, do you do you think this picture of complacency will shift the public's perception of Johnson, or is it too soon to tell, given I, that especially like that he's out he would, of the public but, eye?
3: Yeah, I'd like to think it would, but I think it's definitely, definitely too early to tell. And and this story alone won't do it. You know, like um, Peter Mandelson once said of political communications, only when you're sick of your own voice does the public hear it for the first time. We should remember that the public just aren't keeping as close an eye on this. They're not paying as much attention as political obsessives like we are. The thing that's really cut through, of course, is that Boris Johnson went into an ICU unit and nearly died. And I think he gets... Look, that that, that that was terrible and it would have been awful for his family if the worst had happened. But he does get significant political leeway for having fallen ill. I think the public, as I said, who aren't paying as much attention as us, won't really be sure when he went into hospital, when he didn't. I think there's a before ICU and an after ICU for Johnson. It's going to be difficult to pin this stuff on him. Now, we're different from America, but look at what's happening in the USA. Trump's failures have been... Utterly spectacular. And it's a lot easier story to tell. I mean, it comes out of Trump's mouth every single press briefing that he gives. But polling shows that he hasn't really suffered the calamitous decline that you would have expected him to suffer the last poll i saw he was only three points behind Biden. by biden although they, they jump around a lot But i would say where trump is really suffering is with what america's called seniors oaps whose main concern is, is is their own health so that's interesting but with johnson no i don't i don't think at the moment um he's, he's his reputation is suffering because of this and a lot more is going to happen some of that i think will depend on what the final numbers coming out of this first wave are um the FT had a story this morning saying that the likely death toll at the moment in the UK is probably about 41,000 as opposed to the 17,000 that's obviously been announced by the government. And I think it will matter how we in the UK compare to France, Spain, Italy and Germany. And one other question, I think, will be with Johnson, who obviously won the Brexit vote and won the election at the end of last year. to a large extent because of the help of the print media in framing the national conversation i'm interested to know how the print media really can continue to frame the national conversation now that their circulations are down a lot because of the lockdown um the bbc is coming into its own it's been relatively courageous in the last four weeks about calling the government out with some problems so how is the national conversation going to work under lockdown? And to what extent will the normal rules of political gravity apply to Johnson? It's just too early to tell at the moment.
0: Alex, you've said the government has been treating this from the beginning more like a public relations crisis than one of public health. Does their response to this story bear that out?
2: Oh, completely. This the sort of um, infantile, line-by-line reply as if anyone cares whether you know the cobra meeting was whether the 24th was the 3rd or the 4th uh, Thursday that month i mean it's ridiculous do you remember um, by the way that we discussed on this podcast gove's rapid rebuttal unit a couple of years ago when he was setting that up and we were like uh-oh what what's what's that going to do well this is what what that's doing Um, but it's a more general symptom, I think, of a lack of ideas. That's where it becomes worrying for me. I don't care about this stupid document. It will be here today, gone tomorrow. But the problem at the core of it is that for over a decade, much over a decade, um, Tories have had no ideas. They know they want power, but they don't know why. For conservatives, getting to the throne has become the only goal. They, 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 they've become the proverbial dog that caught the car. As a result, they are pretend politicians. They cosplay at government. It's, it's no coincidence that the last three prime ministers have been effectively tribute acts to respectively Blair, Thatcher and Churchill. The problem is that in a real crisis, pretend politicians cost lives.
0: Frustration about the cuts to public services, it was used by the Leave campaign to blame immigrants in the EU and the last pandemic exercise, which was codenamed Cygnus, was in 2016, just as even Mm. more money was being funnelled into Brexit preparations. Does this report give credence to the idea that both Brexit and the state of coronavirus response are, are symptoms of austerity politics?
2: I'm not sure. I think that, I think that slightly catches the, the timeline of things midway. I think all of them, including Brexit, including austerity, including the, f- the financial crisis before it, are symptoms of the fact that neoliberal, for lack of a better word, structures are falling apart. Basically, the moment corporations became so large and so international that they can no longer be conceivably regulated at the national level, capitalism became a, a different kind of animal. You Monopoly know?
1: capitalism.
2: I, I, exactly. And everything, everything began to centre on markets rather than people because people's lobbying power, i.e. their vote, ceased to matter or it, it paled into insignificance compared to the lobbying power of those huge multinational beasts. So over decades, this meant citizens uh, felt increasingly nothing worked for them, and rightly so. It's not working for them. The, The problem is that we're just, kicking random shit over in in the hope that some of it will land the right side up. It's it's just not the right approach. If you want to change the way politics works, you have to change the, the way politics works. You can't just set your house on fire and hope that it becomes some kind of beacon.
0: Ben, yesterday Minou Shafiq, the do- uh, director of the LSE and the former deputy governor of the Bank of England, She said she thought austerity was just not going to be possible any longer, that people would turn to the state. Do you think she's right?
3: I think probably, yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine deep cuts in the the services that are keeping us going at the moment. Previously, austerity was partly possible because the utility of some of these decimated services was somewhat invisible to Middle Britain and not so now. However, we're going to have to pay off this debt somehow So is it going to be tax rises? If it is tax rises, who is going to be taxed? Does the electoral coalition that the Tories assembled at the last election mean that they are still in hot to older people? Um, There are really big decisions to be made, and one has to imagine there's going to be some austerity. I'm kind of interested in the issue of intergenerational justice and the extent to which, you know, the much maligned millennials could be paying off this debt for 20 years. And the reason we're doing it to some extent is to protect... Older people, You know, these millennials are doing it to keep their grandparents alive. Are they going to be asked to pay off this debt? Already, Dominic Lawson in the Sunday Times was saying it would be deeply fair if older people were asked to pay it off. For example, if we ran inflation high and savings would be decimated. So big, big decisions to be made. One has to imagine there's going to be some austerity. Uh, the question for me is, will there be tax rises and who will pay for them?
0: Naomi, when the inevitable inquiry happens into this Screw up! Will they be able to identify the people who are ignored the warnings about a pandemic? Who will get thrown to the wolves first?
1: Gosh, um, I mean, I think mm. for me the 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 one um, parallel we can draw on is uh, the war in Iraq. So, if you remember when troops first invaded, uh, there was enormous support for the government. Um, in much the same way that there's been big support for the government here today, and as Ben said, you know, pretty high levels of support for Trump as well. People tend to want to get behind the political leaders of the day in times of stress. And this one really has a very, very long way to play out. Um, Let's remember we had not one but two inquiries over Iraq because the first one was dismissed as a whitewash. Um, It was the Hutton report that got dubbed the Mutton report. Um, And even after the second one, um, public uh, opinion broadly, you know, remained that that." that it was a bad idea to invade Iraq, but it took the public a long while to get there. Um, and so, you know, those of us who are against the Iraq war need to remember how long it took to bring public opinion with us. So first, I think it could take a very long time for any kind of inquiry to do this crisis justice. And second, those involved are already really trying to write their own versions of history and pass the blame on to others whether it's advisors and mandarins blaming the politicians, whether it's politicians blaming Europe or the xenophobes blaming China, um, everyone's sort of worried about their place in history already and and we can see that playing through. The only difference I would say between uh, then and now um, uh, and the, the, the current government's handling of corona and the Blair government's handling of the invasion in Iraq is that today we have a lot more data, a lot more information and, of course, we have international comparisons about how other countries have handled this. There is stark contrast to the UK.
0: Next up, if the government is dead set on refusing an extension, then no deal is on the cards in December. But you may have noticed that things have changed somewhat since that rash commitment was made. Back in September, the government earmarked 2.1 billion to prepare for no deal, a sum that is now tiny in the shadow of what's needed to fight coronavirus. Naomi, we were promised 50,000 new customs officers, new regulators, a full new customs structure to deal with independent nation status, Um, let alone the timing involved. Can
1: we still afford that? Yeah, I mean, we can. Um we can afford whatever we want in reality. Um on a on a purely sort of cash flow basis, the government could just print more money. But that's not to say that that you know, cost and value are the same things and it would yet be another burden. Uh, that we would have to bear and one that will now be even more costly because we're in a weaker economic position than we were when those numbers were bandied around last year. And it's likely that, you know, Ben touched on this, you know, either through taxes or maybe that we'll have to expect um, uh, and accept uh, a much higher level of inflation to pay for it for a few more years and that that everything gets a bit more expensive. So it's just yet another own goal, another demonstration of the act of self-harm that Brexit is.
0: We're starting to see opinion pieces, even the Telegraph, suggesting that extension is inevitable. Um, The government is adamant that it won't extend, though. What would you see as a tipping point beyond which they can't refuse?
1: Well, one tipping point could be when their own MPs start pushing for it. Um, Let's remember that a lot of the new Tory MPs in the formerly red wall seats uh, that were held by Labour for a long time. Um, A lot of those Tory MPs know that a lot of the Labour and some of the Lib Dem uh, voters there who lent their vote to them last time around did so very much on loan. And they didn't want our public services and economy to have to suffer a no deal or a bad deal. Um, And they didn't want that before Corona decimated our economy, least of all now. Um, so I think I think when the government starts to hear from those MPs saying, you know, Redcar, <clears throat> Sedgefield, Blythe Valley, Berry North, we you know we are already on our knees. We we can't take any more of this. Please, 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 do not um, go ahead with a catastrophic No Deal or rush through something in just a few short months that will inevitably have to be a very poor deal. That may sharpen their attentions, and another tipping point may come if some EU nation states themselves speak out and ask for an extension. um, We can't negotiate with ourselves. I think even even, uh, this government would accept that. Um, And particularly those very badly hit by coronavirus, so I'm thinking about Spain, I'm thinking about Italy, the UK won't want to be seen to not be offering some small mercy to those who, frankly, like us, just don't have the bandwidth to be dealing with two major, major issues at once, um, and it may be more of a face-saving exercise for this government if it was felt that the request was coming from those nation-states rather than uh, mm. internally from them.
2: Or, or, or the three-quarters of a million citizens who live in Spain, of course, British citizens, um, because there's, you know, there's a very big British population in Spain, the um, Brexit
3: ultras don't like it. They do, though. I was quite interested to see Isabel Oakeshott, um very Brexity journalist. I think she might still be in a relationship with Richard Tice, the chairman of the Brexit party. She tweeted, yeah, we might have to um, extend the transition. And I thought I'm going to dive into the comments and see what people think about this. I wonder probably about 50-50 between the Brexiters. Oh, my God. It was fire and brimstone <laughs> down there. They ain't happy about any suggestion of a minuscule extension, and I was quite surprised to see that. I thought COVID would actually fundamentally have changed the culture in that group and their attitude to the extension. No way, there is going to be a great big shit fight either way. We've
1: been well, we've we've been focus grouping some of this, um, and it, it is interesting. We've been you know focusing on people who switch from from Labour to Conservatives and that are based in some of these newly held um, Conservative seats uh, and their their view of it. I mean, what is really clear is just how little understanding the average person has of government, of negotiations, of, you know, frankly, big, big leadership roles. Um, So they'll say things like, well, of course, of course, the government can do both because there's a department that deals with coronavirus and there's a department that deals with brexit and one can get on with one while the other gets on you know they they just don't quite understand Mm. or even vaguely understand how interlocked all of this is um so so that there is that sort of education piece we have to overcome and you know sort of reminds me of beverages five evils and you know i don't want to say that these people are ignorant they are not it is the fact that government for so long has been this sort of mysterious thing that um we've only now started having daily briefings that large swathes of the population are are tapping into and actually beginning to access and understand some politics um but really in order to win those people over the messenger does have to be uh you know a very credible decisive conservative figure not somebody um linked i don't think with either the the hardline Brexit group or Remainers. Um, And uh, there's a real fear around reopening Brexit divisions. So, uh, you know, these people want a a clear time limit. They want it to be nice and credible. They want it to clearly explain what the benefits are to the UK. And then actually we see them coming over and being quite accepting of uh, an extension. Um, one other thing to, to just point out is that now extension, as a word, is landing with people in terms of extending lockdown, not in terms of extending Brexit. So at Best for Britain, we put out an email last week talking about extension. and We had not an insignificant number of people commenting back saying, no, 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 we mustn't extend. We mustn't extend because the lockdown's gone on long enough. And we were like, oh, <laughs> sorry, you just need to reread the email. So, you know, you've got to remember it, it's not what you're saying. It's what people hear.
0: Alex, is this a matter of individual pride and positioning for ministers? Because Customs are under the control of HMRC and therefore Michael Gove. Is he the worst possible person in government who needs to admit they need more time?
2: I mean, look, it was always a matter of pride and positioning. If anything, this gives an opening actually to sort out who are the real um, you know, headbangers, and who are the sensible people. Um, you know, this, this entire situation, it's like we're, we're in a snow globe at the point where it's turned upside down. If anyone needed any political space in which to soften their position they will not get a better opportunity than this. So I think it makes, it makes things easier for them. That doesn't mean I think they're going to take up that, uh, that space. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean to say I think they're going to use it and, and come to a, a, a better position. But the space is certainly there more than it was before.
0: Ben, have you got something lined up if No Deal does look as though it's on the cards again? Have you got a plan for that?
2: oh dear god God.
0: we can cut cut this can you really
3: what kind of hellscape would it be if we're fighting a global pandemic plague and the whole bloody no deal conversation fires up again in tandem I don't know Um, I find it really difficult to believe it would happen and in fact I was on a Zoom call with some work colleagues the other day assuring them I was certain that there's no way that there will not be um an extension. And then of course number ten briefed out that it was um it was the government policy that they would absolutely stick to the timetable. Gotta say that was probably because Cummings had come back um, from convalescence from from COVID. And um, what would Led by Donkeys do? I don't know. I mean we're just clinging on by our fingernails at the moment. All of us have got two young kids. We're trying to get some posters up. Please, no deal. Don't let it happen.
0: Naomi, what are the supply chains that are currently currently most crucial? Uh, that will put us in the most danger if they were cut off by no deal in December while we're still fighting the disease? Is the uh, pharmaceuticals key to this?
1: Absolutely. Uh, the things that put us in most danger, of course, are the lack of access we'll have to things like blood, uh, to medicines, uh, to the isotopes we use in cancer treatment, anything that's got a very short shelf life and that cannot Survive being delayed by even a matter of hours at a border. Um, if we've if we've left a customs union and um, uh, and and are having to queue things up at the ports, and of course um, something that perhaps we've all now uh, realised we can't take for granted uh, in in these lockdown uh, months is, of course, food supplies um, and how reliant we are on just in time management of food stocks in and out of the country and of course that's before we've dealt with things like the possible threat to peace in northern ireland that that could um happen as a result of uh, a hard border there so yeah uh the the really really crucial things are going to be around of course medicines um and and food
3: But it's just politically impossible, isn't it? I mean, you imagine, look at what happened with this kind of um, RAF flight to Turkey to pick up some PPE and how it was... You remember when Priti Patel had to resign and everyone was following the plane? Oh, her plane back, back. yeah. You know, it was kind of like that. Like, you know, is this going to arrive? That was one shipment of PPE. If there's anything like that from a no-deal Brexit in a COVID situation, and we will still be fighting COVID in in December and January, then surely it's just just politically devastating for them, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I mean, I kind of... uh... I, I, part of me thinks: will, will people be able to take any more of this? Now we know what it's like to, you know, queue up for our food outside the supermarket and have it rationed. And now we know what that's like. Will people just say, "I'm sorry, I've just had enough. I don't want any more"? Or will they, on the contrary, say, uh, "Well, we got through this, so we can got get through hard Brexit as well"? <laughs> and I you know, mean, myself- I, think, I think
1: that's a really interesting point. What I'm a bit concerned about is for those people who voted leave in no small part because their lives were shit, you know, they'd been badly let down uh, by every layer of public uh, local authority, uh, every public body they'd ever encountered with, right up through to to, to MPs and, and government. They were maybe in a miserable job that they didn't like. And all of a sudden they're at home, they might be furloughed, Life isn't actually that awful for them in lockdown. It, it, in many senses, it may have improved. They may be able to spend more time with their family rather than doing some goddamn awful job uh, that that they were doing because deindustrialized areas were never, uh, you know, supplemented with the investment for reskilling and things like that. So I'm slightly worried about that group actually not necessarily wanting to go back to how things were because things were shit for them.
2: Yeah. Can I add medical oxygen to? Naomi's list from before. The UK imports. You know, I think the market is worth several million pounds in imports of medical oxygen. I mean, stuff like that. If you if you disrupt the supply of things like medical oxygen in the middle of a respiratory um, disease outbreak, I I just don't think people would put up with it. <music>
0: Now for our segment to the barricades. Every week, a member of the panel nominates a worthy cause for listeners' delectation. And this week, it's Ben's turn.
3: Yeah, I'm going to recommend the uh, Trussell Trust, who um, uh, campaign on UK hunger and do something about it. They have a network of food banks and they have an absolutely fantastic volunteer scheme. that's really easy. To use trusseltrust.org forward slash get hyphen involved forward slash volunteer. If you go there, you put your postcode in, it will, it will um, match you up with schemes in your area where you can contribute to food banks, you can pack bags, you can give the food out, etc. And of course, there's this kind of massive increase in need for food banks at the moment. And the Trussel Trust, I think, have got a really, really good online system of matching people up with areas where they can help. So I do recommend people go there.
0: Finally, tearing ourselves away from the news, it's worth looking at ourselves and our campaign now and again. Specifically, how do we keep pushing for a close relationship with Europe and maybe rejoining the EU one day without playing dirty? As former UKIP MP, Romaniacs favourite, and teeth-gritting imaginary Spitfire pilot Douglas Carswell put it, (laughs) Remainers (laughs) are still trying to get us to remain, even using this crisis as a pretext. Naomi, is he right? Are
1: we? Um, (laughs) Douglas Carswell is rarely right about anything, uh, and this really is no exception. Brexit has happened. We left. That happened on the 31st of January 2020. And it's an absolute nonsense to say that Remainers are trying to frustrate a thing that has already happened. Short of inventing time travel, we literally have no tools to, quote unquote, stop Brexit. Um, what is true is that Remainers and the majority of Leavers want what is best for Britain, they want a good trade deal, and they know that Corona has stolen precious negotiating time and resources from us. Um, so we need an extension that takes us past Corona in order to have the time to conduct proper serious trade talks. I, th- I, think, they, I think they get that. Um, let's just remember the whole point of having a transition period is to allow time for preparations and business readiness. Um, As friend of the show, uh, Dmitry Groshebinski, wrote yesterday in The Telegraph, the goal of a transition period is to minimise that inevitable financial shock of the UK's exit by using the gap between then and our new trading arrangements through negotiations to give government time to put in place replacement programmes and to give businesses time to prepare, and the pandemic not only makes such a shock in December so ill-timed, it also renders everyone that would be involved in it totally uh, diverted and and paralysed and and not able to do that. And that's you know even when they haven't caught coronavirus, which we know that um, David Frost and Michel Barnier were both at least displaying symptoms of it not not a, not just a few short weeks ago. Um, so he of course he's wrong. Um, there there may be some small pockets of the the, the pro-EU lobby that are campaigning vociferously for rejoin but the vast majority aren't they just want a really good version of brexit rather than a really dreadful one which we're heading to if the government is to be believed and they are not going to request an extension
0: alex is it as simple as watching our tone when it comes to the government's failings both on coronavirus and Brexit, because it's in our nature to celebrate them messing things up because they do it so much. It's so easy in many ways, but we know that in this case, mm. their mistakes cost lives. Partly,
2: I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a we. Um, I, I, I'm not sure you can prescribe how people should behave. I think, I think it's good for people to be aware. That suddenly, you know, I mean, if you have a brain, which Douglas Carswell obviously doesn't, if you have a brain right now, Brexit is not the most important thing. For the most vociferous Remainer and the most vociferous Brexiter, Brexit is no longer the most important thing. It's not the top of the agenda right now. So to keep banging on about it, I think, just makes you look a little bit mad you know, it's like the entire Jenga tower is toppling over and you're still fixated on that one tile. As important as it is, just let it fucking go for a couple of months. Um, But beyond that, I, I think people should be aware of that, but I wouldn't seek to to stifle their legitimate anger. I think people should be free to express themselves how they want to express themselves. Um, I think leaders should be very careful. You know, Keir Starmer should be very careful about how he does it. But I think to an extent he can farm out the negativity to plebs like us. Um, So, I mean, a balance in everything. Thinking back on what Naomi was saying just now, I mean, even in, in purely practical terms, I think to exit right now in the dead of winter, to exit on the 31st of December, which is prime candidate for wave two or wave three of this thing, is just madness. So even on normal a really practical Yeah, so even on a really practical level, we should be looking at the very least at a, a summer exit, when chances of normality are maximised. I mean, that's like the minimum common sense.
0: So Naomi, how, how long do we need? Is Christopher Gray in, in prospect? Is he right to suggest a short extension would be worse than no extension at all? And when, when should we finally have to go, painful though it is?
1: So there's the sort of the technical answer and then there's the pragmatic answer so the technical answer is that the withdrawal agreement makes it very explicit that you can ask for a transition extension once and you can request either one year or two years um according to our polling though the majority of people support an indefinite extension until the coronavirus is solved um when when you're, you're, you're putting brexit in the context of corona um in focus groups, people tend to say, "Oh, well, you know, so sort of six months feels a bit more palatable than than a year. If it was to go on longer than a year, then you know, uh, that would very much frustrate the the democratic will of the people argument, etc." Um, would would uh, a short one be worse than none? I, I, to be honest, I don't have a particular view on whether it would be worse. Um, I just don't think a, a short one gives us any more, uh, you know significant time for negotiations to proceed at the extent that we need them to. Let's never forget that the vast majority of free trade agreements take years, if not up to a decade or more to negotiate. It was always going to be ambitious to try and achieve it in a year. Um, and that was before a global cataclysmic virus struck down every government um, and in particular the European governments that are being the hardest hit by it at the moment and the ones with whom we need to be negotiating.
0: Ben, last week it was revealed that Romanians were being flown into the UK as farm workers. Despite a call for volunteers among the British public, many of those who applied said they'd even be happy to live on site during the harvest. But the farmers were still prioritising foreign labour over the land army the government has called for. Will this make enough people realise that the problem was never with Europe, but with bosses, gangmasters in this country exploiting migrant workers for profit now they're on the sharp end of it?
3: Only if those stories get told. I really, really hope those stories are told and it breaks through with the public. But, you know, it hasn't happened yet. It might be that if the food isn't picked in the fields and there are food shortages, then people will focus on that and the media will focus on that. But, hey, look, I'm an environmental campaigner. And so I'm quite familiar with the extent to which how our food arrives on our plates is a kind of dirty little secret that we all conspire in. Um, at the moment, people are scared. I think their priority is to get food and hopefully to get it cheap. And I think that not enough people, therefore, are focusing necessarily on how, it, how it's getting to their plate. Um, You know, like... The plastics campaign that environmental campaigners have run for so long and made so much progress in has been set back by COVID because at the moment people just want to use anything that kind of lets them keep food fresh in the fridge and not have to throw anything away. And I think to a certain extent, it's the same with what's happening, you know, in those fields in Kent. People just want to know that they're going to get food. I really, really hope, however, this is a story that the media pick up on and really start um reporting. One thing that I did see that didn't get enough pickup, actually, was George Eustace, who's the Environment Secretary, proposing that the minimum wage be cut on farms for food pickers. And that just goes to the point you're making, Ros.
0: It could be that mass gatherings are going to be banned until 2021 when we come out of isolation. How do you think our relationship with mass protest will have changed? Um, Dorian tweeted a picture of a remarkable demo in Israel last week with people standing strictly apart. And it was it was a, an aerial shot and at night. And it was very, very striking. Will we find more creative ways to protest, do you think?
3: I think we already are. I mean, the clapping on Thursday nights is a physical manifestation of a political view. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that, whether it becomes more political. You've seen lots of NHS workers saying, thanks for the claps, but what we really want is PPE. I wonder whether there's going to come a point if someone comes up with a really good idea where people go onto their doorstep, socially distanced, and make a very powerful political point there that's every bit as powerful as half a million people walking through the streets of London. You know, there's nothing uniquely powerful about a mass protest. It's just how we've articulated a strong, commonly held... Viewpoint, but that picture from Israel, which was against the corruption of the Netanyahu government, was hugely powerful. For those who haven't seen it, you know, someone had marked out in what looked like a huge car park, you know, crosses two meters apart, which people stood on, so that they could come together but maintain social distance. So there weren't huge numbers on that protest, but the emotional power came from us, the viewer, looking at it and seeing that people had found a way to protest, even in. A pandemic, the, the most powerful picture I've seen, actually, in the last few days is from one of those ridiculous anti-quarantine, anti-lockdown protests in America. This oh, one yeah. was in Denver. There's a woman in a, um, in a four by four. Um, with uh, like lockdown is communism sign or something like that. She's trying to get through and a nurse in scrubs is standing <laughs> in front of that car and the convoy behind them and that nurse does not move. And it is an absolutely remarkable picture. and You have to watch the video as people shout out you know um, someone says like that nurse is saving lives and they said bullshit it's not true but it's incredibly powerful it, and the, it was social distancing equals communism ben that's exactly what it was it was monkey fuck it's insane sus-
2: sensational it's it's, the, it's one of the most insane photos i've ever seen it's like I don't know what socialism is, uh, but I'm going to call it communism because I didn't know what that is either. So yeah. there.
3: So that, that nurses intervention, you know, I'm not saying it was sort of Tiananmen Square with a guy with two bags of shopping in front of a tank. But it was very powerful. And one of the most powerful protest picks ever is obviously um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 68 Olympics, you know, standing with their fists clenched on the podium. You don't need a million people to, to make a mark. I'm just really interested to see what the Thursday night clapping turns into. And I hope that it can become more political and that we can have mass protests on our doorsteps.
0: Coming back to extending and what that means, it means paying more into the EU budget. Will that be an even more difficult sell now, Naomi? And how much will we have to pay?
1: Okay, well, there's a huge misconception um, about this. And of course, the rabid Brexiters have been whipping us up and saying that if we were to extend, then the UK would be forced to pay into uh, the next round of the multi-financial framework period um, of the EU. And that is just simply not true at all, Um, UK contributions will not continue to be calculated in that way if the transition period extended. Uh, The the withdrawal agreement is very, very clear on this. Uh, It's contained in Article 132 Mm. for the geeks that really want to go um, and delve into it. And effectively what it's saying is that the Joint Committee would agree the amount of the UK financial contribution during the extended period, taking into account the UK's status during that period. It would also agree the schedule for making those payments. And, and other parts of it also say that uh, the UK would be able to participate in programmes, but would do so according to the EU's rules for third countries. So we would be treated uh, like like mm-hmm. a third a third party uh, within the eyes of the of the European law. Alex, it sounds like you've done some... No, no, and, this as well. uh,
2: I, I have, but I, I agree with everything you just said. I just think, again, it's just not top of the agenda. And if people want to protest that kind of thing, they will end up just looking mad because you just end up looking like someone whose house just was swallowed up by a giant sinkhole in the ground and you're making a massive fuss about the fact you had a jar of pennies in there. it It's just, I mean, the amounts of money the state is spending right now is insane. It makes any EU contribution look like money you find down the back of the sofa, which it was already, to be honest.
0: We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. Every week, our bridge back to Europe grows bigger and stronger, like Michael Gove's ego or Pretty Patel's statistics or that horrifyingly <laughs> large baby that was all over Twitter the other day. This week, it's Naomi's turn to play something on the bridge.
1: And so I'm going to be really obvious here, but I think it's important. Um, and that would be us um, joining, uh, not as an EU member, but but as a, a third Party country member of the European Medicines Agency and the um, ECDC, the the European Centre for Disease Control, because if 2020 has taught us anything at all, it's the importance of working multilaterally on fighting disease. And that's the show.
0: Thanks to Ben, Alex and Naomi. Finally, it's our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. (laughs)
1: Hello from me to Philip Cowig, Julie Mayer, Jean McGore, Sarah Mansell, Alan Entrissel and Rob Kilgore.
2: Many thanks from me to Neil Sutcliffe, Ben Squires, Mike Bourne, Julia Cotterill, Margaret Burr and the brilliantly named Emily Des.
3: Hello from me to Gemma Sheridan, Dom Graham, Donna Marie Newman, Matt Austin and Neil Halstead.
0: And it's thanks from me to Michael Stafford, David White, Philippa Chapman, Robin Kellett-Novello, Yaniv Militz and Darren Jones. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor with Ben Stewart, Naomi Smith and Alexandre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.
2: Endemily Death. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>